Well, good morning, everyone. It's a slender crew this morning on this Father's Day. Uh, I want to echo a happy Father's Day to all the fathers in here, whether you're a, a rookie or a veteran. We're so thankful that you're a part of this community and for your service to your family. Um, and we are celebrating you today. Today's your day. Enjoy it. Um, and if you could bring us some sun, that would be great. Well, here we go. I am ready this morning to make a public stand about something. I've prayed about this. I've thought about this. I've really wrestled through it, and I'm ready today to make a statement. Okay? Are you ready to hear it? Yes, sir. All right. I believe that the cruelest invention in the history of mankind is the mirror. Amen. Thank you. That's what I'm talking about right there. I mean, I'm reminded of this every single morning. I wake up, I stumble into the bathroom, I switch on the light, and there, staring back at me, is this thing in the mirror. I don't know if you're like me, but when I look in the mirror, I'm very aware of every little flaw and imperfection. And the worst part about it is that a mirror is totally objective, right? There's no way to explain away what you're looking at. You might say, oh, the lighting is off, but it's really not. Um, What you see in the mirror is true. It's real. Well, we here at Christ Community believe that the Bible works in a very similar way. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we read Scripture, when we hear it preached, when we meditate on it, think about it, memorize it, if we're honest, it will draw out of us our flaws, our imperfections, our brokenness, and our sin. But don't despair. Because even though it's not at all the case with the mirrors of this world, Our text today tells us that when we look at our reflection in Scripture, we can actually have hope. Why can we have that hope? Because God is not done with us. God is not done with us. If you've been with us since the beginning of this series, we've spent six months going through the book of Hebrews. And here we are today, finally, at the last section. We're wrapping up our time in Hebrews today. And the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews, the speaker of this sermon, is taking this opportunity to wrap up in a nice little bow and present what he's been saying this whole time. And that is that God is not done with us. And he reviews what he's been saying to this point in three sections. He begins with what God has done. He goes on to what God is doing and finishes with how we should respond. So if you would please please, um, pray with me, and we'll dive into the text today. Father, it is our prayer that you would keep us abiding. It is our prayer that the light in our lives would be shining on you, as the song that we sung together says. Lord, help us today as we approach this text uh, to be honest with what we see in the mirror. And also, Lord, to hear from you. Help me to get out of the way of the text, Lord, um, so that what we hear today is only from you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the author begins with what God has done. And this makes total sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's like a resume you turn in for a job interview. It's like uh, personal stats for an athlete or a portfolio for an artist. When we're talking about someone... Reviewing what they've accomplished helps us understand who we're dealing with. Or in this case, who's dealing with us. 
And when we're trying to understand God, this task is of the utmost importance. I love one of my favorite preachers from Chicago, early 20th century. A.W. Tozer has this to say. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so, our author begins by reviewing what God has done. Look with me as I read in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Our text tells us, first and foremost, that God has resurrected our great shepherd. God has resurrected our great shepherd. And it makes total sense to start here because this claim is central to everything. I mean, to be a Christian is to confess that Jesus Christ died to earn forgiveness for your sins, yes, but also that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day, defeating death, ushering in a new creation, ushering in a new eternal life for those who are his. Without Jesus' resurrection, we have no Christianity. Listen to what Paul has to say about this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not yet been, or Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If, and listen, this is the key right here. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. Right? If what we believe, if what we do, gather together in the name of a risen Christ, if he's not actually risen, if he didn't die and bodily raise again from the dead, then what we're doing here earns us pity from all people. If Christ didn't rise again, then we have nothing. But because he did, we can have everything. And God alone accomplished this. So if we were to know God, we must know that God resurrected our great shepherd from the dead. And notice this descriptor the author uses for Jesus, our great shepherd. Right? This isn't a title that's original to this text. In fact, Jesus himself coined this title way back in John 10 when he said, I am the good shepherd. And the reason he's the good shepherd, John 10 tells us, Jesus tells us, is because he lays down his life for the sheep. That when they are under attack from a wolf, from the devil, from sin, from temptation, Christ lays down his life to save his sheep. And I love the shift in language as we move to this text, because when Jesus lays down his life for the sheep, he's the good shepherd. And when he rises again on the third day, he's the great shepherd. Just a quick aside, if Jesus is the shepherd, then who are we? The sheep, right? This title for Jesus is as revealing about us as it is about him, right? Sheep are unintelligent, they're helpless, they're defenseless. In every sense of the word, sorry, animal lovers, they're just stupid. They're just stupid animals. And if it weren't for shepherds to guide them, to care for them, to feed them, then sheep would have died out long ago. But... Because God raised our great shepherd from the dead. 
we too can be, though we're helpless, though we're defenseless, be cared for, be guided, be protected. And our text tells us that our great shepherd has this care for his sheep that will last forever. Do you see it here in the end of verse 20? That God raised the Lord Jesus by the blood of the what? Eternal covenant. All throughout the book of Hebrews, we've seen that God is working to establish this true and better uh, plan through Jesus Christ. And here we see that God has established a true and better covenant. And it's an eternal covenant. Now, when, we're talk, when we talk about a covenant, we're talking about like a committed relationship like we would see in a marriage. And this is what God has established with his people. Um, flip back with me, in, or scroll back if you're on your iPad or iPhone, uh, a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 10. To Hebrews chapter 10. And listen with me uh, as I read, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering for all time. Do you see what Christ is doing in this text? He's sitting down. As opposed to the priests of old who are always standing at attention because they have to keep every day, every week, every year repeating the sacrifices over and over and over again. Those sacrifices which our text tells us can't even take away the sins of the people. But Christ, the true and better priest of a true and better covenant, is seated because his work is finished. Because his sacrifice to pay for our sins has once for all implications. This covenant that God has established is true and better because it's based on what God has done, not based on what we have done. Because it's based on Christ's once for all sacrifice, not based on the repeated, ineffective sacrifices of animals. It's a full realization, not just a shadow. It reveals God's full glory rather than hiding it for our protection. It forever forgets our sins rather than regularly reminding us of them. And our text tells us that this covenant is true and better because it is eternal. Which means that if we are Christ's, we can rest in the arms of our great shepherd forever. What a peaceful thought, isn't it? And we so desperately need peace in this culture of the 80, 90, 100-hour work week with thousands of in- inbox emails and with calendar invites out the wazoo, leave alone having to be a parent, a family member, part of a church community, we need peace desperately. And the author knows this about the human condition. And so he starts his benediction by reminding us that our God is the God of peace. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about a peace that's kind of like that superficially harmonious, don't talk about or do anything that maybe might sometime accidentally make someone else a little upset. 
right? This isn't the kind of piece where all you hear is the fork hitting the plate at your family dinner over Christmas or Thanksgiving, right? I love the way one commentator puts it. God's peace is more than the absence of conflict. It is completeness, soundness, welfare, well-being, and wholeness. The wholeness and completeness with which God created the whole world is the peace that characterizes him. Let me say that again. The wholeness and completeness with which God created the whole world is the peace that characterizes him. It's the peace we experience at the end of a long workday when we finally get home, put on our sweatpants, get in our favorite chair, and just relax. It's the peace of having finally finished a long project or a long degree. I'll never, ever forget the mornings I would wake up after having finally finished a three-year master degree. And I'd wake up with this anxiety of, oh, the test I didn't study for, or the paper I didn't write, and then I would just let this peace wash over me. It's done. It's done. The degree is finished. This is the kind of peace that characterizes our God. Because what we deserve, because of our sin, is not peace from God, but it's his enmity, right? But our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, took the enmity we deserve so that we could have the peace he earned. So, let me ask you, do you know what God has done for us? Do you know that our God raises the dead, that death itself is not enough to stop him from loving us? Do you know that he's established an eternal relationship for you, for us, to have with him? Well, a good measure of how well we know this, and I'm talking about know, not just know, not just intellectually affirm, but know in the core of our being, in a way that affects how we act, how we live. A good measure of how well we know this is the extent to which his peace has taken root in us. Now, I'm not talking about a perfect product because God's not done with us, right? But I am talking about a process because God is also not stagnant with us. The more we get to know God's truth, the more we get to understand what God has done for us, the more his peace should be taking deep root in us. Is that peace growing in you? Today, or this week, pay attention to the circumstances that bring about an anxious or, or fearful or angry result in you, response in you. And ask yourself, why does this make me feel this? And how can what God has accomplished change the way I think about this? So after the author reviews what God has done, he turns to what God is doing. Look with me at verse 21. The author continues the sentence, Now may God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Among other things, God is currently in the business of equipping his people. God is equipping his people. Now, I'm curious, when I say this word equip, when we hear this word equip in the text, what comes to mind? Just shout out some things that comes to mind when you think of being equipped. Tools. Tools. Enabled. Enabled. Training. Training. 
words. Yeah, it's about having equipment, isn't it? Right? I mean, the fireman has a suit, an axe, a hose, an oxygen tank, and mask, a helmet, and the like. But what's going on here in the text is something a little bit different than having the proper tools to complete a job. It's more about being made to function in the way something ought to function. It's like this. I will never, ever forget a really fierce wrestling match that I was having once with my sister with six really big guys, like huge pro wrestler. It was my sister. Um, and at some point during this wrestling match, she, she kicked my hand, and I looked down at it, and my, well, something was clearly wrong with my thumb. It was no longer functioning as it ought. So my dad took me to the emergency room. We got some x-rays, and a doctor came in, put a shot of Novocaine in, which really should be called Novocaint, because when he took my thumb and equipped it, I went through the roof. I screamed and I cried. It was so painful. But give me a break. This was like 15 or 25 days ago. The author is getting an idea that is much closer, right? The idea here is much closer to a doctor setting a wound, or setting a broken bone, rather, or sewing up a wound, as opposed to a hardware store clerk handing out tools. God is bringing us back to a state of functioning rightly. And our function is to do his will. Now, notice what's included in the equipping process. You see it here in the text? That God is equipping us with what? With what? Everything good. God is equipping us with everything good. Not just some things, not just most things, or even enough things, but everything good. Friends, family, God is not holding back on us. He's not just trying to make us acceptable. He's not just trying to make us pass a minimum entry requirement. He is trying to make you function wholly, rightly, as you ought. And it's for this reason that Paul in Philippians can say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will bring it to completion. But not today. Because God's not done with us. Now this truth might be a little bit easier for I'm sorry, this truth might be a little bit more difficult for those who actually like what they see when they look into the mirror. Right? Maybe you see your reflection in Scripture and you think, no, I'm good. You might think what you see is adequate, it's sufficient, it's good enough. If that's you, I would encourage you to take a closer look at your reflection in the mirror and a closer look at the standard God gives to us. And I also encourage you to take a closer look at what God is capable of. And hear him say, you have no idea what I have in store for you. As God works to equip us so that we might do his will, he is working in us, our text says, that which is pleasing in his sight. Or put another way, God is making his people beautiful. That song we sang today, you make beautiful things out of dust. He's shaping us, he's molding us, he's mending us, preparing us. So that we can one day be actually excited. Can you imagine? To to see what we see when we look at our reflection in Scripture. 
God is bringing that about in us right now. His work is to make us look good to him, the only audience that matters. And the end goal of all of this is that the, seen at the end of verse 21, God is bringing glory to Jesus Christ. When all this really beautiful art was being hung for First Fridays, this was about a week and a half ago, um, Gabe and I were here, and we realized that we wanted to make sure the full beauty of the art was not lost on the beholder. So what we did is we got up on a really tall ladder and spent some time readjusting each of the spotlights to point directly at the art. And God is doing that exact thing in your life right now. As he's equipping you to do his will, as he's making a beautiful thing in you, he's turning all of the spotlights in your life, in our life together, to point at Jesus Christ. Because when a community of people comes together, are committed to the Lord and to each other, and real change takes place in them, the world out there notices. Just like in the first generations of the church, when people, when a, when a, a group of people were committed to Christ, they went out, they helped the poor, they saved undesired babies, they dealt honestly in business. It was weird. And it was irresistible. And the worship of Jesus Christ spread like an unstoppable force because of what God was doing in them. And God is still doing that today here in this community. So where are you shining your light? In what areas of your life do you prefer the spotlight to be on yourself? Or in what areas do you prefer no light on you at all? It's a good bet that these are the areas where you'll experience the most anxieties, the most insecurities and fear. And it's also these areas where God has the potential to accomplish the most growth in you and glory for Christ. So, given what God has done and what he is doing, how should we respond? Well, there's two groups of people in here today that should respond differently to God's work. And I'll start with the audience to whom this sermon was originally preached, this, this uh, letter was originally written. For those of us who have trusted in Christ as our only hope before God, as our great shepherd, as the one who has put us into an eternal covenant with God, listen to the author's words in verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, I believe the word of God is inspired, but I just have to say I stand apart with the author of Hebrews on the definition of the word briefly. We spent six months on this book. It is not, not brief. You see, because of what God has done, what he has accomplished, what he has proven himself able to do, and what he is doing currently in us, there's a sense in which the only thing we need to do is just don't quit. Just don't quit on what God is doing. When you get discouraged by what you see looking back at you in your reflection in Scripture. Don't quit. God's not done with us. You wouldn't judge an artist based on an unfinished piece of artwork. So don't judge yourself. Don't judge this community, or for that matter, God, on what he has not finished. 
Rather, consider what he has finished. Consider the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, that the sin and death and brokenness that holds us back from being what he's created us to be have been defeated and left behind as Jesus came out of that tomb. Consider the fact that we can rest in the care of our great shepherd forever because of what he has accomplished, not us. Consider God's finished work because that is how he judges us. It's on the faithfulness that Christ has earned that God judges us. And therefore we can have peace. Don't quit because God is not done with us. And the way in which the author ends this section, and therefore the whole book, is the key to how we can remain committed to God. So listen as I read verses 23 and 24. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who have come from Italy send you greetings. We see here that the key to remaining anchored in salvation so that we don't just aimlessly drift about in this world is to remain anchored in God's community, the church. Do you see it here in the text? Greet all your leaders. Last week we talked about how to be a part of God's church is to be submitted to the leaders he places over us and to follow them. He also references all the saints, reminding us of his earlier warnings, right? To stay committed to the church. Don't forsake this, this gathering right here of his people so that we can spur each other on towards good works. And notice that he also references the believers from far away. Because God's church is a global church. And to remain anchored into his church means that we remember our brothers and sisters who are laboring for the gospel in distant lands. Keep your anchor in the church and you won't drift. You won't quit. Because God is not done with us. So that's one group. Maybe you're here this morning just checking out this church. Maybe you're just checking out Christianity or God. Maybe you were burned by God a long time ago um, and feel like he's turned his back on you. And if that's you, I just want to say I'm really, really glad that you're here. It was a good decision to come to church today. And if that's you, how should you respond to what God has done and what God is doing? Well, Paul is so confident, right, that this work that God has started will be seen through to completion. So if that describes you, then your response should be to let God get started with you. Let him begin a good work that he will finish on the last day. Look to Jesus as the only sacrifice that can pay the debt for your sins and as the great shepherd who longs to care for you forever. If you're here this morning and you've yet to take that step of faith, come and find me or Gabe or anyone around here who just looks like they know what they're doing and ask them about it. Because we would love to share with you what it means to be in the arms of our great shepherd. So finally, we have a mirror into which we don't have to fear to look. Because God has proven himself capable to finish what he has started. And because he continues to work in his people. Just imagine this with me. There's a day coming where we can look into a mirror and be so overwhelmed with the beauty looking back at us that we will fall on our faces together in worshiping God. 
That day is coming. But it's not here yet. Because God's not done with us. So don't quit. Don't quit looking in the mirror. Don't quit this community. And most importantly, don't quit God. Because he is not done with us. Let's pray together. God, we are so humbled that on nothing that we have earned, you have chosen to do a work in us. Not just to save us from our sins and from the death we deserve, though that would be enough. But God, to put us aside so that we might work for you. We praise you for this. Give us, Lord, the faith that takes deep root in our heart so that we might endure to the last day. All to bring glory to the name of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.